And Father, as we now come to your word, once again we come as humble beggars who are looking for nourishment, who don't deserve your grace, but who need our daily bread. And so we ask, Lord, give us our daily bread as we study your word. Nourish us, feed us, guide us, convict us, instruct us in accordance with your will for the glory of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to John chapter 4. We are going to be continuing our study in John chapter 4 today. Um, We'll be looking at verses 27 to 30. Last week we started out by talking about uh, how exciting it is to name babies. Some of you guys know something about that? But we also need to understand that it doesn't end with giving them a name. Uh, Then there's childbirth. And we should understand that the birth of a child is traumatic. Um, and those of you who have given birth to children, you know this. I don't have to tell you that. You know this. I mean, I, I was there uh, when my wife went into labor, so I, I know. Uh, so any of you who have, uh, who have gone into labor, you know what I'm talking about. And any of you men who were there when your wives went into labor and gave birth, you know it too. Ironically, however, when we think of the trauma of childbirth, uh, we almost always mean the mother. But I think there's, there's maybe someone for whom it's even more traumatic, and I'm not talking about you, dads. <laughs> I'm talking about the baby. Childbirth is actually traumatic for the baby being born. Think about it for just a minute. In the womb, they are, they're warm, they are snuggled in, they are constantly being fed a, a steady stream of nourishment from the mother. It's a dark and quiet and peaceful world in the mother's womb. But after months of this peaceful, quiet existence, the baby is suddenly forced through this tiny canal. Uh, the space is so small that the bone plates of the baby's skull actually have to shift in order for them to fit through this canal. Uh, but even after that, once the baby is born outside of the womb, their body must make numerous, numerous adjustments. In fact, traumatic adjustments in order for the baby to survive. Uh, just off the top of our heads, think about it, uh, respiratory adjustments. The baby hasn't been breathing air in the womb. The baby's been practicing breathing in the womb by inhaling amniotic fluid in utero, but they've been receiving oxygen through the mother's oxygenated blood in the placenta. But outside of the womb, once the baby is born, the time for practice is over. Uh, There are temperature adjustments that a baby has to make. The baby has spent their entire existence in a warm fluid that's just under 100 degrees. But once they're outside the womb, the baby has to make an immediate adjustment in their body to a temperature that is about 20 to 30 degrees cooler. And this is only the beginning. From what I could gather, there are literally dozens and dozens of physiological adjustments that the baby must make after being born. But you're not here, and I'm not here, to study human physiology. We are here to study God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient word. 
And so the point I want to bring us to is this. Just as the baby who is newly born must make physical changes upon being born, the act of being born again requires that the new convert make spiritual changes. How do you know when a person has truly been born again? And the answer is by looking for certain spiritual changes within a person. And this is the subject that we're going to be considering today. We've been studying the conversation that took place in Samaria at Jacob's well between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And it's been a really interesting conversation, uh, offering just one insight after another in terms of helping us to see what evangelism uh, should look like. But it finally reached the point, if you remember what we, what we covered last week, it finally reached the point where Jesus revealed in no uncertain terms to this woman that he is God incarnate. That he's the Messiah, yes, she said Messiah is coming, and Jesus, looking into her eyes, said, I am. So we saw in the previous lesson that this was not only a claim for him to be the Messiah, and, and, and rightly so, but it was also a claim to be Jehovah God. God incarnate. Do you remember what we saw months ago now? Do you remember what we saw Jesus teach about being born again in chapter 3? In Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus? Do you remember how the new birth is made evident? It's made known, if you'll recall, by its effects. And that's why Jesus illustrated it by likening it to the wind. He said in verse 8, chapter 3, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. What he was saying there is that the new birth, being born again, results in effects taking place in a person's life. It results in changes by which we may have confidence that we are truly born again and that others are truly born again as well when we see these effects in their lives. So that brings us to the point of the passage that we'll be looking at today, which is this. The person who is truly born again will undergo significant changes in terms of what they hope in, what they value, and how they view others. Let me say that again. The person who is truly born again will undergo significant changes, transformation in terms of what they hope in, what they value, and how they view others. So what we're going to see as we continue today is that the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, shows us at least three of the spiritual changes that we should expect to see in someone, in anyone, in everyone, who is truly born again. So having just been told by Jesus that he himself is the Messiah, that he is God incarnate, the story continues in verse 27, where we read this. John writes, At this point his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? Let's just stop there for a second and consider what we see here. It's interesting that the disciples show up now. Remember, they went and they got food in the town that was nearby, and it's possible, if not likely, that they had passed this woman on their road to that town. Now they return and they see Jesus breaking every cultural taboo in the book. What was Jesus doing having this conversation with this woman? And not only was it a woman, but it was a Samaritan woman. And not only was it a Samaritan woman, 
but it was an adulterous Samaritan woman. And needless to say, that they're just shocked. They're a little bit dismayed that Jesus, a rabbi, would be breaking these cultural traditions. The writings of the rabbis taught, quote, Let no one talk with a woman in the street, no, not even with his own wife, end quote. The rabbis were known for keeping a strict code of conduct when it came to interacting with women, teaching, quote, each time that a man prolongs conversation with a woman, he causes evil to himself, desists from the law, and in the end, inherits Gehinnom. In other words, inherits hell. But these were just nothing more than the traditions of fallible men. And if we know anything about Jesus, we know that he didn't think too highly of man's traditions most of the time. And so we're told that the disciples were amazed. They're amazed. That's their reaction to Jesus breaking all of these man-made traditions and rules. Now I want us to stop and think about their reaction for just a minute Because you and I should immediately recognize, we should immediately recognize, that they're amazed for the wrong reason. They're amazed that Jesus is breaking all these traditions, right? All these cultural norms, Jesus is just smashing them. He's totally disregarding all of these cultural standards. But all this does is show how foolish, how short-sighted they still were at this point. Because if they even had a slight understanding of what had actually been taking place, of what had actually happened, they would have been amazed at something else. They would have been amazed that an adulterous, non-Jewish woman who was dead in her sins had been given life in Christ. That is what was worthy of amazement. Not the fact that Jesus was breaking all these man-made traditions. But John tells us, actually, what they wanted to say. They wanted to say, what do you seek? Or what are you seeking from her? What are you trying to get from a conversation with this woman? Or why do you speak with her? But they don't. They want to say these things, but they remain silent. And we aren't told why. We aren't told why they don't say these things that they're thinking. Some argue that it's because, you know, they just assume that Jesus is always up to something good. So if he is breaking all these cultural traditions, he's got to have a good reason to do so. Um, That's, I guess, possible, but it seems to be ruled out by the fact that they're amazed. Uh, And they're not amazed in a positive way. They're amazed in a negative way. So I think that kind of rules out that possibility. Maybe they're just so amazed that they're speechless. That's possible. I mean, we can't rule that out. Or maybe, maybe God himself silences them. Can God do that? Oh yeah. So maybe maybe that's what happened. But the point is that the disciples were amazed at the wrong thing. They were still so focused on the physical that they were completely missing the spiritual. But I think that by the time John wrote this, which was much, much later, the time that he wrote his testimony, he was able to look back on this and to see the spiritual significance of what happened here with amazing clarity. We face the same, uh, same temptation they do, by the way, to, to focus on the physical rather than the spiritual. I mean, hasn't it happened to you that something goes really, really, really wrong? Uh, at least it seems to be going really wrong. But then 
months later, maybe years later, you look back and you realize that God's providence, His grace, was what brought you through it. He was there with you all along. I think that's usually how we see God's action in our lives, in, in the rearview mirror of life, looking back and reflecting on the way God brought all things together to conform us to the image of Christ. In the here and now, I mean, let's just be honest, in the here and now, you and I struggle to see the forest from the trees. But when we look back, we're able to see how God has provided and strengthened us in some way through difficult trials, tribulations, and harsh circumstances in life. And that should teach us to be patient. It should teach us to be patient in the here and now, knowing that we can usually look back and see exactly how God was working in some circumstance. Never lose sight of just how short-sighted we tend to be in the flesh. And trust in the Lord at all times, leaning not on your own understanding. That's what the disciples were doing. They are trusting in their own understanding. But now we'll see the response of the Samaritan woman. So the passage continues in verses 28 and 29. John continues writing, So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? So John's account of of this incident starts with him recording what might, at, at first glance, seem like a really insignificant detail. He tells us that this woman left her water pot, the vessel with which, with which she would have drawn water, right there, and she goes back into town without it. Does that seem insignificant? It's not. There are no details in Scripture that are insignificant. There are no wasted words or letters in God's Word. This is actually very significant. And there are two primary reasons that this is very, very significant. First of all, uh, it's what you would expect from an eyewitness. I mean, eyewitnesses are, uh, they just naturally include details that might seem irrelevant. Uh, eyewitnesses include as many details as they can possibly recall, and they let the police or they let the judge or they let the jury sift through those details and figure out what is significant versus what is not significant. Someone who isn't an actual eyewitness wouldn't think to include such seemingly uh, irrelevant or mundane details. And so, uh, and so John, actually, if, we, if you look at his book as a whole, he does this several times. He includes these details that uh, somebody who wasn't there wouldn't have known. Uh, he includes things like the hour of the day when the disciples spent the night with Jesus in the first chapter. Or, or the fact that when Jesus appeared to the disciples after he had risen from the grave, they caught 153 fish. Who would know that they caught 153 fish? Somebody who was there. Somebody who counted them because they were there. So only an eyewitness. All of this reminds us that John's testimony is very reliable. But the second reason that it's significant that the woman left her water pot behind, I think is maybe even more important than the first one, the first reason. The second reason it's important is that it tells us that she has experienced the living water that Jesus had promised her. What had she been counting on for nourishment, for satisfaction before? What was she counting on to fulfill her need before? She was counting on herself. She was counting on her ability to draw water from a well, 
That was important to her. You don't have something to draw water from in that culture, you die. But she believes what Jesus said. She believes what Jesus has offered, and so she's not even concerned about leaving it there. I mean, think about it. She had come to this well for literal drinking water. She and Jesus had this conversation that involved an invitation for her to drink living water and to never thirst again. And at this point, it's abundantly clear that she has found the water that satisfies the depths, the deepest depths of the human spirit. And thus, she doesn't think to herself, oh, I I better take this with me. Uh, If I'm going back into town, I I might need this if I'm going to survive. She has a clear understanding that God himself, the great Jehovah in the flesh, has stood before her and spoken with her and promised her eternal life. And her values, what she trusts in, what she views as being important, these things have just changed entirely. They've changed entirely. God has granted her the gift of repentance and faith unto salvation. And so instead of her drawing water from the well, she is the one who gets drawn to living water, to Christ. Jesus says in John 644, that no one may come to Christ unless they're drawn by the Father. And Jesus tells us that all whom the Father gives to the Son will come to him. And she's included in that number. And this is one of those things, one of the sure things that we should expect to see in the life of someone who has repented and put their faith for salvation in Jesus Christ alone. This is what we should expect to see in a person who has been saved. A person goes from trusting in something, maybe they trust in themselves, they trust in their good works, they trust in their their moral uprightness, they trust in their ability to uphold as much of the law as they can, they trust in their intellect, they trust in their water pot, whatever. And suddenly that changes. And they trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Friend, have you left your water pot behind? Have you left behind the things that you trusted in before you came to Christ? Of course, I'm not talking about a literal water pot. I mean, whatever you trusted in other than Jesus for salvation before you came to Christ. I mean, for me, you want to know what I trusted in? I trusted in the fact that I didn't drink, smoke, or do drugs. I, I sinned, yeah, of course I sinned, but I wasn't, a, you know, I wasn't a worse person than anybody else. In fact, wasn't I a better person than the average guy that was my age? See, when I came to Christ, I had to leave that entire mentality behind. And that's what I had trusted in. What, what a stupid thing to trust in, by the way. Believe me. All that type of thinking does. When you're saying, well, I'm better than most people and, uh, you know, I I don't do this and I don't do that. All that type of thinking does is foster pride within your heart and foster animosity toward your fellow man. By leaving her water pot behind, John is telling us that this woman's days of practicing this lifeless, fruitless, futile religion that was filled with rites and rituals, they were over. She was done with them. She had left those things behind. Do you see the change in her life, in her values? And have you experienced a change like that? 
Don't get me wrong. I I understand that change takes place over a long period of time. I didn't instantly stop trusting in the fact that I didn't, you know, do all these things. I had to be broken from it, but I started. That journey started when I came to Christ, when I started seeing the, the, the stupidity of it. See, for most people, it doesn't happen instantaneously. God can change someone instantaneously, of course, and sometimes he does. This seems to be the case with this woman. But it seems that more often, whatever we trusted in before becomes a thorn in the flesh. And we, we, it's something that we will need to get in the habit of turning away from and forsaking many, many, many times before we completely stop trusting in it. I mean, praise the Lord that we're not saved by having a great faith. Rather, we're saved by having even the smallest, even a mustard-sized faith, mustard-seed-sized faith, in a great Savior who saves us despite the frailty of our faith. And by his grace, at that point when we come to Christ, by his grace we begin a war with whatever it was that we trusted in before. We go to war with it. We don't just sit content with it and say, well, I'm going to trust in both. No, we go to war with the flesh. We go to war with anything that we trusted in other than Christ. And the point is this, God's grace changes us and strengthens us to want to engage in that fight, in that battle, in that war, in, in, in putting the flesh, the desires of the flesh to death. So it changes what we value. His grace changes the things that we cling to, the things that we trust in, the things that we put our ultimate hope in. And this is one thing that we should see in our lives after we've come to faith. And if we don't see that we've been changed at all by the grace of God, we need to go back and ask ourselves why that is. What is it then? If it's not Christ that we're trusting in, what is it that we're trusting in? And why aren't we going to war with it? What are we filling our minds with that might be preventing us from changing as much as we should want to? As the author of Hebrews urges us, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. The second thing that we see from the woman, she's she's left behind what she had trusted in before. The second thing we see from her is a confession of faith in Christ. And not just your average confession. No, this is a very public confession that she makes. She goes to the men of the area urging them, come and see this man. He told me everything that I've ever done. He knows about my sin and everything. Now the question that in, in, our, in our Bibles, the question that she ends with is translated, this is not the Christ, is it? That's an okay translation, but a more literal translation of what she says from the Greek would be perchance or perhaps this is the Christ. As one commentator notes, from her subsequent conduct, it is evident that she meant, I have found the Christ. I have found the Messiah. And her public confession to her neighbors demonstrates her rebirth, end quote. See, she has an understanding. She knows that she can tell them, but really what needs to take place is these people need to go to him and figure it out for themselves and find out and experience him for themselves, discover his grace for themselves. Now, a lot of people have the idea that the new birth is a result of a profession of faith. 
that the new birth is something that is caused by a profession of faith in Christ. But what we saw in the previous chapter, what we saw in in chapter 3, is that the opposite is actually the case. We are not born again because we profess Christ. Rather, we profess faith in Christ because we've been born again. Remember, again, what Jesus said to Nicodemus. He said, unless one is born again, more literally, uh, born from above, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And he also said, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. See, anything that comes before the new birth, anything that precedes being born again can only be of the flesh, including a profession of faith. That's exactly why the Bible warns us repeatedly of false professors. A false professor is somebody who has made a profession of faith in Christ without actually being born again. A true profession of faith can only be wrought in a person by God's sovereign work in them. That's why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Because what's born of flesh is flesh, and what's born of spirit is spirit. So nobody can profess faith in Christ without the Spirit Until a person's born again, until they're born from above, they will not have any interest in the gospel. They will not have any interest in coming to true, saving faith in Christ because they cannot understand the gospel. Remember Paul's instruction to the Corinthians. He said, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. What's born of the flesh is flesh. What's born of the spirit is spirit. But what we see here, Paul says that that they're foolishness to the unregenerate. That the gospel and the spiritual things are foolishness to the unregenerate. What we see here, though, is that this is not foolishness to this woman at all. She has an understanding that can only come from God. Do you remember what Jesus said to Simon Peter when Peter made his, uh, his profession of faith? He said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And the same holds true of this Samaritan woman. And the same holds true to this very day. A true confession of faith in Christ can only come by the sovereign outpouring of God's grace in a person's life. You and I can't force or, or convince anyone to believe. That's something that only God can do. God uses the preaching of the gospel to accomplish this purpose of lifting the veil from the unbeliever's heart. So we have the responsibility, in the way that God has ordained all things, we have the responsibility to sow seeds, to share the gospel, right? But we must do so with the understanding that the results are entirely in God's hands. Not 50% in God's hands, not even 75% in God's hands, not even 99.99999 to infinity percent. No, the results of our labor to share the gospel are 100% in God's hands. No one may come to Christ unless they're drawn by the Father, and all whom the Father gives to the Son will come to him. 
And here we observe the enormity, by the way, of the differences between Nicodemus from the previous chapter and this Samaritan woman. If you and I had been there, if you and I had had been around at this time to see these two conversations taking place as the disciples were, we would have surely believed that Nicodemus was actually the more spiritual of these two characters. I mean, think about it. Nicodemus loved to talk about spiritual things. Uh, The woman at the well, she was actually spending most of her time trying to break free from talking about spiritual things with Jesus. Nicodemus is the one who came to Jesus, who sought Jesus out. This woman didn't seek Jesus out. Jesus sought her. Nicodemus wanted to know how to be saved, and the Samaritan woman tried to avoid, again, talking about spiritual things at all, including how to be saved. Nicodemus seemed like the more spiritual person who tried, at least tried, to uphold the law of God. This woman was an habitual adulteress. And yet, despite these enormous differences, despite the fact that Nicodemus is the one who looks like the more spiritual person, this woman is the one who experiences the new birth. She's the one who's born again. In fact, her story is actually the first story in John's testimony of somebody being born again. Now, what about Nicodemus? Well, we, we hope he was saved. It seems like maybe he was saved, but there's, there's no certainty that he was ever saved or that he ever made a profession of faith. I think he probably was, and, and I think that his salvation is made evident by the care that he, that he had, that he showed uh, for Jesus' body after Jesus' death. But you know what? You'll find non-believers who are willing to honor and, and show respect to the dead. Unbelievers will do that kind of thing. It's, it's not outside of their, uh, their capacity. Not so with this woman. We have to kind of guess with Nicodemus. We don't have to guess with this woman. She's born again. Not only has she made a confession, she's made a very public confession. And not only has she done that, but she's left behind what she trusted in before. So what we see this woman doing here should remind us of what Jesus said. He said, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. That's from Matthew 10, 32. Now, again, let's be very clear about this. You are not saved by doing that. Rather, you, you do that because you're saved. If you, if you have the idea that you do this in order to be saved, you're putting the cart before the horse. Or for those of you who own horses, that's putting the trailer in front of your truck, not your truck in front of the trailer. Real saving faith does this. God has done a great work in the heart of this woman. There's no other way to explain this immediate, very public confession of faith on her part. We see, we see the confession of faith. We see the outworking of that faith in her leaving the water pot behind. But there's one more very important piece of evidence, and that is the loving concern that she has for her fellow man. The, the, the concern that she has for those who are still lost. These are the people that... She's grown up around these people. She knows them. They know her. These are people who probably knew what an immoral person she was. They're people that that she had used. They're people that had, you know, used her. She she hadn't loved them as much as she loved herself. They'd never cared for her. If anything, they shunned her. 
which is why she went to the well alone. She had never felt even a, even a remote tinge of concern for these people and had never given a second thought to their need for salvation until now. Here's what we need to understand. We need to understand that there's no such thing as a Christian who hasn't been sent into the world to bear witness to Christ. There's no such thing as a Christian who has not been sent into the world as a missionary for the gospel. The second she was converted, she was appointed as a missionary. And the same is true for me. And the same is true of you. As Charles Spurgeon famously said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Sharing the gospel is a duty. It's a responsibility, a privilege that every true Christian has been entrusted with. And the truth of the matter is that it's the natural outworking. Sharing the gospel, wanting to see other people come to Christ, is the natural outworking of the inward change that has been wrought by, goods, by God's good and sovereign grace. Once a, once a person has experienced and knows God's love, truly knows God's love, they want everyone they know, everyone they come into contact with, to know it and to experience it for themselves as well. John Calvin noted this. He said, quote, It is the nature of faith that we want to bring others to share eternal life with us when we have become partakers of it. The knowledge of God cannot lie buried and inactive in our hearts and not be made known to men. End quote. Why not? Why can't we just go on with our lives not caring about the salvation of those around us? I mean, on a, on a purely emotional, human level, because if we truly believe that salvation is only found in Christ, then we understand that people who do not believe in Christ, who do not repent of whatever they were trusting in before and put all of their hope for salvation in Christ will be lost without him and they will be destined to miss out on every single benefit and blessing provided to those who repent and believe in him. We understand that we are unworthy recipients. We, understand, we should understand that. And when we understand that, we want to share it. Because it's not ours. It, it's, it's Christ's. It's, it's his gospel. We're, we're ambassadors. Because of all that she had learned in this conversation with Jesus, and because he had granted her unmerited grace, she was stricken with this immediate desire to go and introduce everybody she knew to Christ. I mean, think about it. Why else would she go to the people? Why else would, would she get up and, and, and go as fast as she could to tell people, you need to come see this guy? It's not because she was filled with gratitude. If she was filled with gratitude, that would keep her there with Christ. I'm sure she had gratitude, but it's not gratitude that sent her to the people. It's also not the fact that she had been filled with all this new information about who Jesus was. Again, that would have kept her there with Jesus. She would have been asking him all these questions. I'm sure she had more questions that she could have come up with. So why did she go? Because the love of God constrained her to go. It was the love of God filling her and guiding her to go. 
There was a spring of life and love that was overflowing from the depths of her heart, a love for those who had used her, a love for those who had abused her, who had scorned her, who had gossiped about her, who had shunned her, a love that she could not restrain. John tells us in very clear language in his first letter, we love because he first loved us. It's from 1 John 4.19. See, that verse is telling us about a cause and effect. What causes us to love God? The love of God. Only the love of God causes us to love God. The fact that he first loved us. And what causes us to love others as we should? Again, the fact that God first loved us. This is the love, friends, that has sent missionaries to foreign lands. This is the love that has filled missionaries who, who have gone and given up every earthly comfort, every earthly pleasure for the sake of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the love that has strengthened Christians to stand strong in areas that are hostile to the gospel, where refusing to relent from faith in Christ is actually an invitation not only to be rejected by men, but it's an invitation to be beaten, maybe even murdered. These people love their neighbors. They love the Lord, but they love their neighbors, they love their enemies, they love their families, and they love their fellow man enough that they would rather be shunned, they would rather die than to be silent about God's gospel of grace. Friends, do you have this love for the lost? Do you have this concern for people who don't know Jesus? Do you have a desire for the lost to experience God's love the way you have? Does your heart break? Does your heart mourn to think that people that you know, people that you interact with, people you love would enter into eternity without knowing him? Do you have a burden to share the gospel with people who will spend an eternity in hell if they were to die today without knowing Jesus? This woman casts every single excuse we might come up with for not evangelizing aside. She's, no excuses. You might say, well, you know, I'd, I'd like to. I need to be more educated first. I, I need to have a, a better understanding of these things first. And yet, here's this woman who's been born again for maybe five minutes at the most. No seminary education. Uh, she, she hasn't read Calvin's Institutes, uh, and she's ready to go. Why? Because all that information isn't necessary to share the gospel. What's necessary is having this love for the lost shouldn't stop us. It didn't stop her. What she didn't know didn't stop her. It shouldn't stop us. Instead of being reserved, instead of being quiet uh, because of what she did not yet know, she simply went and shared what she did know. That she met a man who knew everything about her and who had revealed himself to be the promised Christ, the promised Messiah. And that was enough. That was all it took. Because look what happens next. Let's look at verse 30 together. Verse 30, John continues saying, they, the people that she went and told, they went out of the city and were coming to him. Now if you remember, Jesus had told her, go and get your husband and come back here. She did better than that. I, I think we can assume that she went and she got her husband, but she got as many people as she possibly could above and beyond that. What a, what a wonderful and, and what, a, what a glorious thing 
It is to see the testimony of this woman whose life was changed so dramatically, so instantaneously. Her life is a testimony to the saving power of God to change the life of all who will repent and believe in Christ. She bears evidence of salvation immediately. Now, in Christian circles, what we would call this is bearing fruit. Bearing fruit. We're looking for for evidence of salvation. Uh, It should be understood that there's no such thing as a Christian who does not bear fruit. There's no such thing as a person who is left completely unchanged and shows no effects of being born again. Whether anyone at all were to come to Christ as a result of this woman's efforts to bring people to Christ, that's not fruit. That's not fruit. Rather, the fact that she loved them enough to go and share the gospel with them, that was fruit. That alone, regardless of the outcome, because the outcome is in God's hands, that alone was evidence of her salvation. She has an inward change of values, which results in her leaving behind what she had previously trusted in. The water pot is this worldly thing. Her heart isn't tied to worldly things anymore. She professes faith in Christ publicly, and she has a love for her neighbor that can only be explained by a love and a grace that is instilled in a person by God. And these same things, friends, these same things should be present to some degree in our lives as well. They were immediately evident in her. That might not be the case with you. Some people take time to bear fruit. You know, for example, I've got a, a grape uh, grapevine that I planted in the backyard here, before, behind the house, uh, the first year that we got here. And every year, it, it's grown a little bit here, a little bit there. Winter comes, and it shrivels up and dies, and I'm not even sure if it's there anymore. Spring comes up again. It grows a little bit here, a little bit there. doesn't do anything. Until this year. This year, it produced one little cluster of about six grapes. It took nine years for this thing to bear fruit. And that's sometimes the way it is with us as well. Sometimes it does take some time to produce these kinds of evidence of salvation. I get that. But here's the thing. At some point, these things should be evident within every true Christian's life. The same things that we see taking place in her life. The person who is truly born again will undergo significant changes in terms of what they hope in, what they value, and how they view others. And friends, if you don't see these things in your life, if you don't see any evidence of any of these things in your life, here's what you need to do. Go back to square one. Repent and believe in Christ. Repent. Go go back. Leave your proverbial water pot, whatever it may be, behind whatever you're trusting in, forsake it and put your trust in Christ alone. Profess with your mouth that Christ is Lord, knowing, believing what Paul says in Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved and love those around you. Enough to share, to go and risk the discomfort for the sake of their souls sharing the good news of forgiveness and redemption by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. May we each bear much fruit in our lives, all for the glory 
of Christ. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this testimony of this Samaritan woman. What a great testimony it is of your ability to change even the most wretched of sinners. What a, what a great testimony it is to, to the, the depths and the greatness of your grace. We thank you for the characteristics that we see in this woman's life. And we confess to you, Father, that as we examine our own lives, as we examine our own lives, we, we desire to see these things. And yet, we have a battle with the flesh that often prevents us from bearing as much fruit as we'd like to. So we pray, Lord, that you would give us a greater desire to bear fruit than we've had. We ask that you would give us a greater desire to testify of Christ than to cling to the things of the world around us. Lord, we can only be a light in the darkness by your grace. And we do pray, Lord, for a rich and full harvest. Give us courage and wisdom to sow seeds, to share the gospel, and the wisdom to leave the results in your hands. But we ask, Lord, we ask that you would be with us as we go, and that you would even go before us and prepare hearts, prepare minds, prepare ears to hear the beautiful words of the gospel. We ask these things in the name of Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior, who died for us that we may live. In his name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.